All right, so let's go ahead and um, go ahead and look at this passage. It's, um, it's out of Matthew 28, 18 to 20. Then Jesus came to them <clears throat> and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. Um, my guess is that this is a very familiar passage to each one of us, that this is not the first time that you're seeing this passage. Um, I just want to take apart components of this passage that, that you may not have seen, that it begins with, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. He has all the power. He has all the resources. I've got all the influence. And I have intentionally chosen to use that power and all those influence to actually go out and develop people. And we are going to get to that part about how we develop people, which is cool, which is great that we should be in the business of people development. But this all authority in heaven and earth, I, I, I feel like sometimes when we look at that, we just kind of gloss over it. And we think, okay, well, Jesus is the king. Of course, he has all authority in heaven and earth. But if that's the driver and the, the reason why he wants to be a people developer is because he's got all the power, he's got all the resources, he's got all the influence, doesn't it make sense to know a little bit about what, what's the nature of that authority? Like, well, how much does he have? Like, everything? And he, and he chooses to use that to develop it. That's fantastic. Built into, built into the word authority is the word author. When you're the author of something, you command it, you found it, you, you are in charge of it. When you're the author of something, you know the beginning to the end because you've kind of written that thing. You're, you, you're familiar with from the, from the alpha to the omega. There's a sense that, you know, I, I've kind of made this thing, so you see I am the author of it. And sometimes it's worth spending some time with, like, okay, what does that mean? That there's an authority. There's this influence that Jesus has, but to know him as an author, that's, that seems different. That seems more personal. My first couple of years at New Song, um, I, I got used to the fact that this was a church that a lot of non-believers actually frequented, and people came to Christ, and that's a good thing. And I remember one fellow who came to Christ was so excited. He started to grow, and he was part of New Song. He eventually joined leadership. I think it was my second, maybe my second year there, he and I started interacting, right? Because he still had a heart for non-believers. He wanted to really make a difference. And he said, hey, Dave, I've, I've put together a handout, a manual for young believers and how to grow. I was wondering if you could take a look at it. I go, of course, I'd love to take a look at it. And if I had said his name, you, you know, you guys would know. He's a good, good guy. And so, um, so I go to his place, right, and he, and he uh, you know, whips out the manual, and I'm kind of, like, looking through it. And I'm like, okay, this is pretty good, but it's very sophisticated for new believers. I mean, he used kind of stick figures to make it somewhat animated, but it really was very sophisticated. A little bit complicated for me, but I didn't want to say it, was, it wasn't good. I said, oh, it's okay, it's okay. He's an engineer. So he, his mind works that way. But he put together a really nice man. But, I mean, it was like, and it wasn't short. I mean, it was fairly thick, right? And I said, uh, it's, it's good. Good job. And then I had to think of a reason to leave because I, I had to get going, right? I said, you know, I have to get my brakes fixed. Like, hey, let's, let's catch up another time. But, hey, thanks for, thanks for making your best attempt at a, at a manual for young believers. He goes, where, where are you going to get your brakes fixed? I go, well, I, I just got to go to this place. I got to get my brakes fixed. I really felt like I needed to go. He goes, no, 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 Dave, Dave why don't I fix your brakes? I said, what? 
No, this is what I do on the side. I've got a garage in the back. I've got one of those, you know, things that you jack the car up. Let me fix your brakes. And I, I don't know if he's an expert. I, it's just a loving gesture, but I think, okay, I mean, if he knows what he's doing. So I literally, like, leave my car out there, and, and for the next hour and a half or whatever, like, he's, he's fixing my brakes. And so I go, wow, that's, that's pretty kind of him to do that, right? You know, he lowers my car, and, and sure enough, like, the brakes are fixed. I'm like, wow, he saved me, like, couple hundred dollars right so I go home that night right like any other young adult late at night after dinner you're kind of decompressing you're in your bed you're kind of thumbing through stuff I'm, I'm a reader and so I, I whip out his manual I start thumbing through it oh my god this, this is actually quite good <laughs> this is way better than you know five hours ago when I, I I don't understand it wasn't so good when I first read it and now I, I just think it's well thought out. There's a, there's a very, very intentional, the way he's written the paragraphs and the diagrams. What was the difference between my first viewing and my second viewing? The only difference is I got to experience the author. He fixed my brakes. He fixed my brakes. And I go, this guy's unbelievable. He fixed my brakes. He didn't charge me anything. I mean, there was a love there. And I can't deny, I walked away from that place, like, very touched. And I started reading his manual, and I read it differently. You know why? Because I actually knew the author of that manual. I had spent time with that, that author. He, he loved me. He, he treated me to a set of breaks. And I realized that's a big difference. There's a thing called the Bible. Wonderful piece of literature. You read that thing, and, and, and no thought about who the author is, it's, just, it's a piece of literature. Sometimes it gets boring reading that thing. It's thick, too. It's complicated. Some of the Old Testament stuff, you wonder, does that really apply to New Testament people? It's complicated. But if you got to know the author a little bit, might you read that manual differently? I think so. And so before we jump to, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, which is an incredible vision, churches name their mission statements after that, and most churches have that as their mission statement. Make disciples. And yet, all authority in heaven and earth is, is, you know, that's something to marinate over. That's something to really take in. I mean, I know you guys did the silence and solitude yesterday. I'm guessing a lot of that happened yesterday as you got to know the author. And I'm wondering if we just kind of camped there just a little bit, just a little bit, and say, well, how well do I know this author? How well do I really know God? How much time do I really spend with him? And by the way, you know, knowing God and getting to know the author has, has a whole range of, of activities. You can start with Psalm 1. Psalm 1 is very clear is that, you know, blessed is the man who is not walking the counsel of the wicked or standing in the way of sinners or sitting in the seat of mockers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season. Everything he does prospers. It's like, wow, I want to be a man or woman of God like that that kind of sits at the feet of God. And it's like, well, that's a great way to get to know the author. Then you could, John 4, 34, which says, you know, uh, these disciples are wondering, had Jesus eaten yet? Has he eaten yet? And Jesus says, you know, I have food that you don't know about. And he says, my food is to do the will of the one who sent me, to finish his work. So th- these are both great ways to get to know the author, that, you know, kind of concerted time, devoted time to... To, to, to read his word and study his word and contemplate and reflect, that's a great time to get to know the author. But as you hear what he says and actually do it, the will of God, that's another, even Jesus said, this is how I get 
fed spiritually. I actually do the will of God. I, I listen to what God tells me, and I do it. That's a great way for me to f- be fed. I said, wow, that's, that's a good word, to have both, right? Have the silence of silence. To have, be there with God at the same time as he speaks to you. You know what? God wants me to reconcile with my family. God wants me to run my business in, in a way that, that has a lot of integrity and, and, and be ethical. It's like that's what he wants. I'm going to do that. And the Bible says when you do that, you actually get fed spiritually. You get to actually know the author. So maybe we camp there just a little bit, just a little bit. And say, wow, before we get to the part about make disciples, let's kind of reflect on that a little bit. And I, I think that's what Jesus is saying. Look, I'm, I'm pretty much the guy. I'm in charge of this. I'm the author of this authority. And because I have all this power, because I have all this resources, I choose to put it into people development. We can talk about priorities. It's January. We're thinking about how, how do I focus my year? Hey, maybe this is something that we do as a high priority because Jesus did. When I mention discipleship and evangelism, wherever I talk or just even my family or, or friends, I get these weird looks, like as if like I've got like three heads. It's like when you say that, you're not talking about us. I mean, you're talking about those super Christians, right? You're, you're talking about those other people who are more schooled and educated. It's almost like I'm inviting them to go to the dentist, like when I mention evangelism. It's like, Oh, oh yeah, that's good. Yeah, we should definitely do that. Yeah, good word, Dave. It's almost as if you say discipleship and evangelism, but it doesn't apply to the people in the room because it's not directed toward you because your name isn't named. It's like, oh, it's good, Dave. And that's good that you're doing that. You know, that's, that's, that's what pastors should do. I'd like to introduce to you something, a, a kind of an effect that I think affects things like when you talk about discipleship and evangelism. You hear it, but you don't really hear it. We don't think it applies to you. It's called the bystander effect. The bystander effect is a sociological, social psychological phenomena that refers to cases in which individuals do not offer any means of help to a victim when other people are present. The probability of help is inversely related to the number of bystanders. In other words, the greater number of bystanders, the less likely it is that any one of them will help. Isn't that interesting? So if somebody's crying out for help, if you just have one person they're more likely to respond to that help than if you have multiple people because they, they think they're not the ones that are targeted, right? Um, the bystander effect was first demonstrated in the laboratory of John Darley and Bib Latane in 1968 after they became interested in the topic following the murder of Kitty Genovese in 1964. These researchers launched a series of experiments that resulted in one of the strongest and most replicable effects in social psychology. In a typical experiment, the participant is either alone or among a group of other participants who are Confederates. An emergency situation is staged, and researchers measure how long it takes the participant to intervene, if they intervene. These experiments have found that the presence of others inhibited helping often by a large margin. For example, Bib Latane and Judith Roden, 1969, staged an experiment around a woman in distress. Seventy percent of the people alone called out and went to help the woman after they believed that she had fallen and was hurt. But when there were other people in the room, only 40 percent offered to help. The bystander effect. Right? So the more people actually hear something like, oh, go make disciples, go that, the more people hear that, the less likely that people are actually going to do something about it. And I wonder if that's kind of the way our churches are sometimes. 
It certainly it is in my house with certain requests that we make as parents. Uh, one of the agreements that Helen and I have is ever since we've been married is that uh, she would do the cooking and I would do the eating. It's a wonderful <laughs> partnership. It's a great covenant. It's a good deal. We both get a lot out of it. Over the years, I felt somewhat guilty that that's not a great deal for her. So I said, you know what? As you cook and as I eat, let me do the dishes. I'll do the dishes. You know, the kids are young. I, I, that's the least I can do. And so that's what we do. All right? For, for, in our early years, she would do the cooking. I would do the eating. And as best as I can, I would do the dishes. Well, the kids got a little bit older. And I got a little smarter. And I said, you know, division of labor. Let's train our kids. So after dinner, when they were, I don't know, like seven, eight or, or over, or maybe a little bit older. I would say, kids, we need to do the dishes. Mom did the cooking. I, we did the eating. We need to do the dishes. Just like that. And all of a sudden, our kids get very scholarly. One of our kids will say, well, Dad, you know I do have a lot of homework. And then she scoots upstairs. And the other kids say, well, you know, there's that game that we were thinking about watch i, I gotta go watch everybody has some excuse because they don't think that little request let's go do the dishes applies to them in any way because they're bystanders they're like well dad didn't say my name he didn't say elizabeth or or maddie or Danny. he just said we're gonna do the dishes and immediately the bystander effect kicks in nobody does the dishes are you kind of getting where i'm getting i think when we say that about discipleship and evangelism, I think something similar happens. I think the pastor thinks, man, we're going to preach a message on discipleship and evangelism, and they're all going to go and do it. Well, the more people you have in the room, the less likely they're going to do that. <laughs> That's what the bystander effect is. It's a social phenomenon. It's a psychological phenomenon. It's pretty much across the board. But what if instead of a bystander effect, we had what's called the first responder effect? What if we took this other concept, which is also out there, and started to do this. A first responder is an employee of an emergency service who is likely to be among the first people to arrive at and assist at the scene of an emergency, such as an accident, natural disaster, or terrorist attack. First responders typically include police, firefighters, and emergency medical responders, such as paramedics and emergency medical technicians. That's what first responders do. Very different than bystander effect. When first responders see something that's urgent, that's in urgent mode, and things are, are falling apart, they actually respond. That's what they do. I don't know what the percentages are in Orange County, but in Northern Cal, 93% of the people in that area, they don't go to church. One out of ch- 21 church plants succeed. In all across the land, the divorce rate still is 50%. Men still look at pornography even though they go to church and they walk with Jesus. They still look at pornography across the board. I don't think much has changed that there probably is a spiritual emergency going on right now. You can choose to be the bystander effect and say, well, you, well Dave, you're not really talking to me. You didn't name me. You just said that generally. You must not be talking to me. Well, if you're a first responder and you know there is a spiritual emergency, whether it's your marriage or your family or your business or Orange County or Northern Cal or California or the world, isn't that what we're supposed to be about? That we should be first responders, not just bystanders. 
the beautiful thing about this passage is that it shows us how to make disciples. Isn't that great when the Bible actually comes out and says it? It says, this is how you make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teach them to obey everything you've commanded. This is how you make disciples. Let's break that down a little bit. Help people go public with their faith. That's what baptism is. In my area, there's two things that are well-known in terms of going public. And number one, if you go public with a company, it's like mega bucks. You know, like you think of Google, you think of Facebook. Hey, we're going public. It's a lot of money. Very well-known in my area, in the Bay Area. Yeah, we're going public. But also well-known in California is that when you actually go public with your sexual orientation. Oh, I'm, I'm coming out of the closet. I'm going public. Most people in California kind of know those two things. In fact, I would say that those two things are fairly well-known. But when a Christian goes public, I don't know how many people actually know that. Clearly, the finances and sexual orientation is a big issue going public with that. But not many people going public with their faith. That's what Jesus is saying. It's saying, help people go public with their faith. That's what discipleship is. That's how you make disciples. Help them to go public. Don't let it be hidden. Let it shine. Let, let people... Uh, Proclaim and exclaim who they are in Christ. That, and and they should be, there should be something very noticeable about us. That's what discipleship, that's what Jesus says. Help people go public. That's what baptism is. And then it says the second thing, which I love. I just like, man, that's like, man, there's no wiggle room in that one. <laughs> Teach them to obey everything Jesus commanded. I said, wow, everything. Jesus commanded a lot. <laughs> he did. So discipleship, if you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you want to know what a disciple is? It's someone who follows Christ. That's what a disciple is. So if your church is trying to produce disciples, one of the indexes, one of the criteria, one of the things that you should be looking at is, well, how are you with following Jesus? In every way, because that's what the Bible says. That if you want to make disciples, one of the things that you must get across is that they follow Jesus in every area of their lives. And that's, by the end of the year, if you're kind of a, a metrics guy like me, because I like to be successful, I want to know from January 2015 to December 2015, man, how, how did I do this year? Was I successful? There's lots of definitions of success. But the Bible says the main way is like, well, did you follow Jesus? Did you follow Jesus in your private life, in the things that you watch on TV, in movies? Did you follow that in your marriage? You know, when you could have cut corners and you didn't in your, in your workplace, you actually follow Jesus. So there's very tangible ways that you can measure that. That's what a disciple is. That's how you make disciples. Um, this, even though it's intellectually clear to all of us that that's what obedience is, you know, I have a hard head, so I, I needed more persuading. I needed to kind of have God wake me up, so to speak. I was, uh, uh, Helen, Helen and I were driving home one day, and, um, and we were about to make that left turn to Poplar. I don't know, I, I, Helen, I don't know if you remember this. She was driving. I was in the passenger seat, and this guy was right in front of me. <laughs> I go, what, what, is that? what does that jacket say? It says, follow me. And I, I was like, what the heck? Because I had been praying about, God, I want direction. I really want to be like what you're about. And, and he's like, follow me. And I, by the way, if you look in the New Testament, the number of times he says that, it's quite often. Matthew 4.19, come follow me, Jesus said. I don't make you fishers of men. It, this is, I was like, this is biblical. Who is this guy? I go, what the, where did that come from? So I'm like, you know, Helen, this is what I've been thinking a lot about. I really feel like this is the message he's giving in my heart. In, in fact, um, I mean, I, I, I know some, some of us just like create like a life vision or whatever. I, you know, I like to do that every now and then. So my life mantra right now, even before this, was to hear from God and to do what he says. That's my life mantra right now. 
as of today, you know, three or four years ago, we, we, that's my life mantra. I was like, holy cow, I, you can't get any clearer. <laughs> He's saying, you're right on. That's what I want in your life. I want you to follow him every area of your life. You, as you listen to me, follow me. Follow me. So, you know, I'm a curious guy, and I, I, it's great that I got a word from God, but I want to know where, where that, who, who is this guy? Like, I, I, I've never seen this. Well, it turns out um, at airports, you know, when a planes land, and then you have motorcycles that lead planes. They have jackets that say, follow me. So they're, they're actually, you know, guiding points for, for air. But, but I didn't need to know that, you know. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, it was Jesus speaking to me. As far as I was concerned, it's like, man, God's speaking to me. All right? But I had to find out where it all came from. But that's where it comes from, if you're, if you're wondering. Um, so I go, okay, I'm going to do this. Okay? I'm not going to just listen to the word of God on Sunday. I'm going to try as best as I can to follow the Lord in every area of my life, right, and see how that goes, okay? Um, three years ago, I, I uh, uh, met a guy named Dave Gusselin, who is a Caucasian fellow who's married to a Chinese-American woman, two great gals. He happens to be a softball coach, and his daughter is a, is a pretty good softball player. Uh, his daughter was nine, and my daughter was eight, okay, and we ended up on the same team. And it was beautiful. It was like, wow, I was watching his kid play, and I'm like, wow, that girl's really good. Now, I should have been thinking witnessing. I should be thinking Jesus. I wasn't. I was thinking, I want my daughter to be just as good as your daughter. That's what I was thinking. Confession. So I walk up to him. I said, your daughter's an amazing pitcher. How did you get her to be like that? I have a pitching coach. His name is Vicki Reeves. It took me months to get her. Finally get Vicki Reeves. She starts coaching my kid, 8, 9, 10, 11, starts to pitch almost as good as his daughter. I mean, pretty daggone good. I feel like mission accomplished. Okay, good job, Dad. Um, seven, eight months, or no, a year ago, he sees me at the ballpark, and he says, man, Dave, you know, I, I was wondering, like, if we could go out and have, like, a meal together or something like that. Right? I would love to. Like, what, where do you want to go? He goes, well, you know, really, really love Korean food. And, I'm like, and he goes, you're Korean, right? I go, yeah. He goes, I was wondering if you could help us order off the menu. And I go, what do you mean off the menu? Because, you know, like there's stuff that you get on the menu, and you just read it, and you say, oh, give me number 17. And then there's stuff off the menu that's really good. And I'm thinking because you can speak Korean that you'd be able to order off the menu. And I didn't have the heart to tell him, I don't know any Korean. <laughs> but I wasn't going to tell him that. If God was going to use this opportunity, I was like, okay, I will brush up on my Korean. So we go to this really good Korean restaurant, Korean barbecue. I'm feeling fairly confident. I'm just hoping the, the waitress is not going to expose me as a fraud. So I started ordering off the menu in my best Korean imitation. And she goes, oh, okay, well. And she starts bringing food out. And Dave's like, whoa, this is really good stuff. And they're eating. And, 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 and he brought his friend uh, who, who, uh, who worshiped Buddha. I mean, they're the Buddhist family. He's not a Christian himself. And there's two non-Christian families. But I'm feeling pretty good about myself because I don't know any Korean, as most of you who know me don't know that, right, know that. And uh, I'm like, okay, I'll do the best I can. God, I'm going to need your help, right? Three quarters of the dinner in, Dave Goslin, by the way, he's an uh, assistant professor at San Jose State, says to me, hey, I've been wondering about this Bible verse. Could you tell me what this verse means? And frankly, I, I feel like, dude, I, I've already clocked out. I mean, this is dinner. Can we just chill, relax? That's what I was thinking. And he's like, no, 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 I have this verse. I, you know what? I have to study it. I really don't know. But he was, it was a genuine question. 
We get done with the meal. We're out in the parking lot. I felt the Holy Spirit tell me, ask this guy out for breakfast. I'm like, what, what, what was that? What do you mean, ask this guy for breakfast? I said, okay. All right, I'm going I'm to follow you. Because that's what you said. At least that thought, as best, I didn't hear an audible voice. It's like the sense is like, ask this guy to have breakfast. <coughs> so I say, I say to this guy, Dave, say, hey, um, seem to have, you seem to have Bible questions. Would you like to get together for breakfast next month? He goes, man, I'd love to. He jumps on it, right? And then we're like, oh, maybe we should, like, send pa-. He goes, you know, I was thinking, like, let's pick a passage and out of the Bible and study it. He goes, which version of the Bible should I bring? I go, you know the Bible? No, no, I don't know the Bible. I just know there's a lot of versions, like NID and King James Version. So we start rattling off, you know, verses. Sure enough, this is seven <laughs> months ago. We start meeting every month because <laughs> he, he wants to. And, and every month he has this question. And we talk about his question. It was like, wow, this is crazy. Three months ago, right, we're having breakfast face-to-face, and he decides that he wants to share something vulnerable about a past sin, right? He goes, yeah, I've never been able to shake it, Dave. It's been a long time, and I just, I just feel guilty. I feel ashamed. There's silence. And I, I really, again, this is what I'm trying. I felt like the Holy Spirit saying, you need to share Christ right now. I pulled back. I said, you know, Dave, um, sins like that and all sins, Jesus died for that. So you could be free. So you wouldn't have guilt and you wouldn't be ashamed. That's why Jesus came and he died and he rose again for that. His response is, you know, Dave, I, I've, I've heard that a lot. Like, I, I've heard that so many times, that message. But it feels different now. There's something about what you just said that it's registering. And then again, the Holy Spirit saying, you need to share Christ right now. And I say, hey, would you like to receive Jesus, Lord and Savior? He goes, man, I'd love to. So we bowed down right there in the restaurant. We prayed together, right? Right there, because I'm trying to do this, right? And so he goes out to the parking lot. I go out to the parking lot, and he texts me. He goes, Dave, I, I'm just a little bit with waterworks right now. I'm just kind of struggling through all this, but man, I feel Thank you. Thank you for sharing Christ with me. I'm like, wow. By the way, yes, I do have a seminary degree. I've pastored before. But none of what I just described to you required a seminary degree. Do you like Korean food? You can do that. (laughs) Do you have Bibles and different translations? You can do that. Do you know how to just say, do you want to accept Jesus? Yeah. That's all it was. I said, Lord, if this is what it's going to take, I, I want to be about this. I really want to be about, and you, I just felt the presence of the Lord right there in that restaurant. Here, here's the really cool thing about this verse is that the Bible says that when we actually do this, make disciples of all nations, he gives us this assurance. He's like, this is what I want you to be about, and when you do it, I'm going to be right there. Says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Does that mean that God's not with us all the other time? No, he's always with us, right? But what he's saying is that there are moments in the way we do life when we connect with something that is of high value to God, like discipleship and evangelism. He's saying, look, I'm especially there. And I want you to know that. Now, I know that... Um, 
we go through the Bible a lot in this church because I was talking to Chang Leonard, like you've been in First Corinthians for quite some time. True? So I know the Bible is valued. When you look at the Old Testament, the number of times God's people struggled with anything. Abraham, I don't have any kids, what are we going to do? Isaac, Jacob, Joshua, Moses, when they, anytime they struggled, God never gave a prescriptive roadmap to success, but he always said what? I will be with you. That's what he said. Moses like, I'm going to the, uh, the, the, land, the, the land of milk and honey, I'm going to go, I just need to know, are you going to go with me? Because if you don't go with me, I can't go. He was that convinced that knowing that God went with him was of such premium, paramount importance that he needed assurance that he was going to do that. He didn't have a, an idea of what that meant. He just said, I just need to know, are you with me? And here's what's fascinating. It was so, this idea of God being with us was so important. He named his kid after that. I mean, Emmanuel was the name of Jesus. It means God with us. Are you hearing that a little bit, that when, when God says, look, surely I am with you and to, I am with you to the end of the day, he's basically saying that every time that my people have been struggling and they needed some sort of assurance, this is what I've said. And in regard to discipleship and evangelism, he's saying, look, you don't understand. You've got to understand something. If you wrap your life around this and you shared your life with people and invested in people and you were about the people development, I am give you, I'm going to give you so much assurance in your life of my presence, it's just going to blow you away. It's going to blow you away. And, and many times, you know, because I, I meet with people as well, and I hear their stories. I think 90% of the Christians I meet with want some sort of assurance that God is working in their lives. They just do. We do. We want that. In other words, if you don't have that assurance, you start to feel a little insecure. Now, think about that, living life out of insecurity and how many people you blame and, and you, you punish people from that insecurity. When you have the security of knowing God is with you, you respond differently to trials. You start to feel like, wow, God has my back. I'm not alone. I'm really not alone. There are many ways that God says that. One of the ways he says, like, man, when you make disciples of all nations, baptizing people in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded, surely I am with you to the end of the age. That's what he's saying. But it's hard. It's not easy. I understand that. But this is what... We're hearing from the Word of God. Okay, but like you, um, maybe I'm not going to be a missionary overseas and stay for 30 years. Maybe I don't plan a church. Maybe I don't go to seminary. But man, I, I'd like to do something where I am right now. Okay, how can we get a head start and make disciples? If if it's that important to God and it should be more important in my life, and God assures us of His presence when we do it. Man, I'd like to begin with my family. I'd like to begin with my church. I'd like to begin with my company. How do I do that, Dave? Love to walk you through some of this. Because sometimes we need a head start, don't we? Right? Sometimes it's like, okay, you know, if I'm going to you know, get in shape, I'm not going to go run 20 miles. All right, you know what? Let me just go around the block. If I'm not dead, by the time I run, I'm going to do it again maybe tomorrow. I just need a little head start, all right? So maybe today I do around the block. Tomorrow I do two blocks. You know, next week, maybe I actually, you know, run a mile, right? But you need a head start. We all need some sort of head start. And by the way, that's not a bad way to start with a little bit of a head start. In fact, companies are using that concept. Really, schools, churches, all are, okay, you know what? Let's take baby steps, okay? If we work with baby steps, then I think we can get to the next step. Um, so, you know, I was at uh, Bill and Sarah's house last night. We talked about um, social scientists. 
It's a very interesting breed of people. I mean, they look at behavior and, and they capture statistics of what works, like, like companies that have done really well, what's the common theme of all these companies, even though these companies in the same business aren't doing, you know, so I, I actually enjoy reading some of that. And so I started reading up on, on companies that were helping other companies and people get head starts to, to achieve the ultimate goal of what they wanted, whether it's like if they wanted to lose 30 pounds, which is like, oh my God, down the road, they would go, okay, we'll give you a head start. We'll help you to lose five ounces or something like that, right? So the example in the book, which is fantastic, is like they did an experiment with uh, a, a car wash business, right? And they sent people to the car wash business, and or actually two car washes, and they, uh, the one car wash business, they said, hey, um, you come visit us eight times, the ninth one's on us. We'll stamp it. We'll stamp. We'll stamp. It's, it's on us. You don't have to pay for it. So you go eight times, right? And you pay for eight car washes, the ninth one, it's on us. Okay? And they experimented to see, okay, what if we did this other thing and the other car wash did this? Okay, here, we want, we're going to offer something similar. We're going to have you come ten, ten times. Come, come to us ten times, right? But we'll give you a head start. We'll stamp the first two. So both car wash people have to get to eight, right? This one has to get to eight. They have to get to eight, but the difference was that they actually had a head start and they got two stamps. So they just ran it. So, okay, I wonder who got to eight first. University always, the car wash that gave the two stamps got there first. And all it was is the same eight. Like you're going to the car wash eight times. But what was it about? They were given a head start. You see what I'm saying? What would be the Christian equivalent? Uh, it's going to be so obvious. Like you guys, oh, not that. You know, you know what your head start is? Holy Spirit. <laughs> It's like, it's like a zillion stamps. You realize the Holy Spirit inside of you has memorized that verse, like inside and out, saying, surely I am with you to the end of days. I, I, why don't these guys do it? And he's saying, when you start doing it, I'm there. It's not just two stamps. He's like, you don't understand. I'm going to change that guy's heart, that girl's heart. I'm going to give you words that you didn't even know you could say. I'm going to give you, in fact, I'm going to be such a part of that whole thing, you can't even take credit for it. Anyway, you're so glorifying God anyway. I'm just going to make it happen. So it's not even two stamps. It's almost like nine stamps. <laughs> you have the Holy Spirit inside of you. You just have to activate it. You just have to do something. I'm like, really? Yeah, that's it. Because you're made that way. The Holy Spirit inside of you just craves and can't wait to talk to somebody who is not of faith. He's like, it's, it's like he gets up in the morning for that. <laughs> He's just simply waiting for us to go. <laughs> doesn't matter how clever you are. No theology. It doesn't matter. It's like, look, no, I'm, I'm going to do this, but you have to go in there. I'm the head start. Holy Spirit. Here's a second head start that I, I think is so helpful, and I, I think this will be really encouraging for us. Um, one of the things I've, I've always appreciated about Paul ever since I, I got to New Song was he was known as the discipler. That's what he was known for, you know, from day one. And he still is. He's a tremendous gift of, of shepherding, right? I mean, he sits with people, maps out how to, you know, a, a good spiritual life and getting in touch with God, right? And I know many people in this room have been impacted by that. I, I want to kind of, like, dissect that a little bit. Why, whether it's Paul or someone who really believes in discipleship, why that impact was so significant. You're like, well, okay, I, I learned more than the Bible. I mean, I, I got Paul's passion. I felt like he cared. I mean, there's so many, right? Again, 
social scientists that have actually researched it to see like, you know, what impact mentoring or being an example has on people that want to change, okay? Um, Timmy's a four-year-old, okay? Um, they wanted to know if they did a delayed gratification experiment with Timmy, how that would affect his life from that point on to junior high, high school, his academics, his SAT scores, how he does at work, and who he, how he gets married and all that, right? Four, year, four years old. Here's what they told Timmy. They put a marshmallow in front of Timmy, and they said, Timmy, you can have that marshmallow now, or if you wait 10 minutes, we'll give you two. Right? So they, the videotape is running, right? And they, they kind of watch Timmy. He's like, oh, he's like, literally, it's like, he's squirming. He picks it up, licks it, puts it back. <laughs> and he's like, oh, man. And he picks it up and eats it before the 10 minutes. And so they tracked Timmy, and people like Timmy who failed the delayed gratification test. And sure enough, their SAT scores are 200 points less than other kids who passed the test. You know, they got into schools, but they weren't very, you know, their work ethic was erratic. They got married, but their, their marriages were kind of unstable, right? And it's like, wow, I mean, I don't know if I could pass that test. I was like, dang it, is this like destiny? That's, that's one thought, right? But then they saw, actually saw some kids who failed the test actually did okay in the SAT. They actually they had a good marriage, actually did well in life. And I said, well, we got to analyze that. What happened to that group? And you know what they discovered in those groups where they failed the marshmallow test, but they did really well in life? They discovered that each one of those kids who failed the delay, delayed gratification test had at least one person in their lives who modeled self-control. So even though they couldn't do it, they actually saw somebody who could do it, and they, and they copied it. That probably is like half the people in the room right now, because you probably would have failed that marshmallow test. It's like, dang, no wonder I made it. I had mom who like kept me from eating sweets before meals, and I had to be self-controlled. I mean, who knows? Praise God that we're all here and we have some measure of self-control, right? But think about that, the power of example. Really, the power of example. Discipleship is nothing more than that. I mean, you could talk all you want about the Bible. I mean, your people are going to get Bible whether you like it or not, okay? And they should, but they don't often get an example or a model of what that Bible looks like in someone's life. And guess what? You can do that. Because you don't have to be a rock star. You don't have to be Apostle Paul to model behaviors that you want to see in the people that you're ministering to. That's it. That's the head start. And then, you know, at certain levels, you feel, wow, this is really fun now. Because it says, surely I'm with you to the day. The more you do it, the more assurance you feel, and there's a level of confidence and joy. And you walk in, it's like, wow, I feel refreshed. Was God just there? Well, he just said, if you make disciples of all nations, surely I am with you today. And all of a sudden, you are rearranging your schedules so you can meet with people regularly. You realize, my goodness, I want to do this more and more. You see what I'm saying? I just want to present the scriptures in a way that says, you know what, I could do this. I'm hoping that you're saying, you know, I could, do, I could model this. And by the way, converse are true. Like you can be an amazing like Bible ex- expositor, but maybe you cuss. Maybe you get drunk and they see that. It only takes one poor example to almost invalidate everything that you even taught them through Scripture. At the same time, if you're a really good example, it's, it validates everything that they're reading. And this is what we're talking about. Okay? All right, so let's make this really practical. You know, maybe you're thinking, man, I, I want to get started on this. Okay, this is what we do uh, when we, when we you know, start discipleship groups. We actually start with non-Christian friends that you love and respect. It's okay. All right? Now, we don't just disciple people in the church. We disciple people outside the church. Everyone has at least two or three non-Christian friends, you know, 
who don't go to church but seem to be friends with you. Uh, if you don't have one non-Christian friend, that's okay, because it's not easy to make friends. Um, <laughs> Paul and I will talk and we'll strategize to help you make friends. Okay? I'm pretty good at that. I think Paul's good at that. If you don't have any friends, we'll get you a friend. <laughs> Maybe you can pray about it, okay? Because you should have non-Christian friends. I wonder if you don't have any non-Christian friends. Like, what? I don't understand. Like, are you with all Christians? And it's just in the Christian life. So start with your two non-Christian friends right now who are in your life, who you love, who you trust, and they trust you. Okay, start with them. Pray for them regularly. I, I say pray behind their backs, right? Instead of gossiping behind their backs, pray behind their backs. And, and let the Holy Spirit go way ahead, okay? Um, that's what I always say. We have a weekly prayer group between 8 and 8.45. We have people from the West Coast that call in, and all we do is pray for these people, right? It's beautiful. You really feel like God's doing the heavy lifting. Okay, listen to the Holy Spirit for what to say and what not to say. You are your worst enemy. <laughs> Sometimes when you get into a discipleship segment, you start preaching, telling them what to do. It's just like a lecture. And they're like, oh, man, this is exactly why I don't want to go to church. All right? Maybe God's saying, don't say anything. <laughs> just listen. This is important, by the way. Of all the training we've had in going to church, I think sometimes churches train people to listen to the pastor on Sunday, but they don't train them to listen to the Holy Spirit from Monday to Saturday. I am working right now very hard at this last one with myself and the people around me because that's the problem. Because they go seven days and they go, oh, man, I got I to gotta get to church because I want to hear from God. Like, you can't pick up the Bible and <laughs> just listen? Like, you can't talk to God? Like, really? Right? This is important. By the way, this process helps you do that. So, uh, in the beginning, I, I, I get real practical. I actually start meeting with my non-Christian friends once a month. I just do it. I ask them what they want, like, like Dave, right? I just said, okay, it's, it's set. It's locked in. Uh, Dave came to Christ, so now we meet twice a month, right? Because he feels like he's under a spiritual attack, and so we meet twice a month. Uh, li- notice, listen and pray, a lot of listening, a lot of noticing, okay? Not much lecturing, not much preaching. I gather together with two or three other Christians, and we started this in January. We're going to launch this group in, in September 2015. I, I get together with two or three Christians. We meet every Tuesday, and we disciple each other, and we pray for our non-Christian friends. And then over the next nine months, month seven or eight, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invite six and seven of my non-Christian friends into my group because I've been praying for them. Now, I pick low-hanging fruit. I'm not going out to some Timbuktu and say, oh, I'm a pastor, and I want to disciple you. You know, come, come, to, come hang out with me. That's foolish. So I pick low-hanging fruit. Last couple of years, I've done a lot of non-Christian weddings. Very interesting. I don't even know how that happens. They find me on the internet and say, hey, can you do our wedding? And I'm like, oh, I don't know you, but okay, let's, you know, let's talk. And so I'll do their counseling and I'll do their wedding. I say, wow, this is a good friendship. So I pick low-hanging fruit. So I asked two couples I did weddings for, and they both said yes. They said, we'd love to be in that group, man. We don't really get church, but, you know, if you want to hang out and talk about God, we'd love to do that. So we're meeting next month. But I'm hoping that these four non-Christians are going to join our group by month seven. But the launch date, right, is September 2015. All right? I, I, is that it? I, I don't oh, this is, this is Paul. Okay. okay. So, so that's it. Okay, that's it. The, the crazy thing about this is that it's not about hearing more inspiring messages. It's just do it. <laughs> you have the same Holy Spirit. You've got to head start. You, I think you have one or two non-Christian friends. Just start meeting with them and then start praying for them and then have a plan. We have a nine-month plan to launch these groups. Yours may be seven months. Okay, and Paul and I are in contact, and if you want me to follow up with this, I would love to. Because this is one of the things I do. I do run that church up at San Mateo, but I'm also part of something called Q Place. And all we do is we set up these groups, right, so that non-Christians can have conversations about God in a safe, self-discovery environment where they get to discover God. It's really exciting, really exciting work. All right? Hey, let's, let's close in prayer. 
Heavenly Father, um, I, I'm encouraged that your word says that when we make disciples of all nations, that you guarantee your presence. And all of us know that you are here with us, and we don't deny that. But there does seem to be a special presence of you in moments where kingdom values are on display. And whether we call the people development or modeling or mentoring, it's, it's the same. You've called us to that business. <clears throat> You've called us to that task. You did that for three years and modeled for us that, that even though you had a small church of 12, that they've changed the world. And you've called each one of us to be world changers of our world, of our families, of our neighbors and people that we work with, that God so loved our world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.